The world is a vampire. This is Slashers, a horror movie podcast brought to you by two goons with nothing better to do on whatever night it is we decided to record this week. My name is Jake, and with me as most of the time is my best friend, colleague, co-host, and cohort, Brian. Brian, say hello to the mutant goons from beyond. Oh man, you're gonna make me cry on air, man. He said best friend. <laughs> I love it. I gotta hype you up somehow. Oh, somehow. Ouch. Oh, I gotta humble you too, right? Sick burn. Don't let it get to your head. Anyway, yeah. Brian, how was your week since we last podcasted together? Oh, it wasn't too bad, man. Uh, just kind of get back into the swing of things with work. Uh, kind of a little bit of been pain in the ass with the rain and everything, but uh, yeah, it's fucking cold as shit in the morning let me tell you i think it's like 36 degrees outside when i'm out you know bebopping around yeah um no thank you Uh, (laughs) my windshield's been frozen over every day the past week and i live in california i mean that's that's not supposed to happen (laughs) yeah that's funny because you say your windshield's been frozen over and yet my windshield has literally like a a quarter inch of ice on the entire windshield so (laughs) Dude, did you just engage in gatekeeping about your <laughs> windshield's frizzinity? Because I feel oh, well. like we can both have frozen windshields, bruh. <laughs> My frozen windshield does not call your frozen windshield into question. Uh, I don't know, man. I, think, I feel like mine's a little bit more uh, frozen or er Fine. Okay, why don't you mansplain to me? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, so we are here this week. We are gathered here today to discuss the movie Salem's Lot. That's right. I'll remind everyone that we are a horror movie podcast brought to you by Two Goons, etc. and so forth. Um, we have previously done with great success Pet Cemetery by Stephen King. It is our goal to put out one Stephen King-related adaptation per month. In doing that, we... Um, you know, have nothing better to do with our daily lives, despite our full-time jobs, our spouses, uh, hanging out with our children, all that stuff. So we're also undertaking the burden of reading all of these materials as well. Now, I say this only as a caution. We will be referring to this book and the source material. We are not reviewing the source material. We're reviewing the movie. Right, Brian? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I feel like uh, we would definitely be uh, carrying over into at least... Uh, two hours plus if we were to just do like straight book talk and then go into movie talk i don't know if we'd have enough time for that so yeah i feel like it's a good reference point to do uh just touch base on the book maybe the differences between the two uh but for the most part we'll just go off the movie yeah and inevitably this is going to be remade right i feel like the fact that it hasn't at least as a movie is shocking they did do the rob lowe 2004 version but whatever not getting into it uh, I, don't, I wouldn't. I wouldn't technically consider that, you know, part of the movie. But that's just me. <laughs> yeah. Well, my point is, is that I think that they'll probably do a feature film adaptation. It seems inevitable, especially with it doing so well and Pet Cemetery generating so much interest online right now. Uh, right. I feel yeah, like. You, yeah. Go on. Sorry. No. Nah. I was just regurgitating what I had already said. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, unfortunately, um, 
I don't know. Do you think it's just people not having enough ideas where they're just to the point where everything's just a remake these days? I, I, I don't think that's the problem. Actually, I was talking this over with a couple of our uh, friends and fans and followers on Instagram. Uh, I think that modernly, it's not so much that we're out of ideas. You look at Shudder and you look at some of these other platforms, you look at even Netflix, and some of the original horror content that's coming out is great. Um, the problem, I think, is that a major studio isn't willing to invest large sums of money unless they can get a guaranteed return. So they want to create things that already have built-in SEO right. and metadata content. They that want people sense. to go, oh, Stephen King, I've heard of the guy, let me do this. Versus, yeah. you know, oh, what, what is the new one, Velvet Buzzsaw? I don't know. Yeah, so I feel like these movie studios should really just kind of take a chance and try for something new right there enough of this regurgitation bullshit when it comes to these movies regardless if it's jumanji or uh any fucking horror film i feel like the new chucky i think child's play is supposed to come out what do you think about that have you seen it didn't watch the trailer for it i'll be honest but i never particularly gave a shit about the original uh i know that that's probably blasphemy to a lot of other 80s and 90s horror fans but it just, I couldn't bring myself to be afraid of a doll even after watching Talking Tina on uh, Twilight Zone. Yeah, I don't know. I wasn't, you're not, you're not missing much. As far as the trailer is concerned, it seems like it was a whole lot of buildup. They didn't really ever show the doll of Chucky. And uh, to be honest with you, I feel like it wouldn't surprise me if they completely threw like a gender swap in there and made it like a, I don't know, like a Charlotte or something. <laughs> this is Charlene. <laughs> I'm wearing overalls and I have a sassy attitude. <laughs> it seems like it would make sense. I mean, wouldn't put it past them. Seriously. You know, me too. Right, Brian? Hashtag. <laughs> Let's just Anyways. take a hard right and avoid that topic right. like it's the plague. <laughs> so the book that this is based on came out in... Uh, it's. October 17th, 1975, and then the uh, two-part made-for-TV movie debuted November 17th, 1979. So when you factor in, you know, the production time and cost and length, uh, and you factor in when the book was released, it's almost as if it went immediately into some form of development, which is crazy considering this is only his sophomore effort. Uh, This is the second book that he wrote after Carrie. so that blows my mind. Shall I get into the statistics for this film? Yeah, go ahead, man. I think they'll be interesting to hear because I don't think it did it really come to box office or was it kind of like a straight to film or straight to movie or a bleh, straight to TV? It was, so it was straight to TV and then it was later adapted for a film release, but I couldn't find any kind of statistics on box office or anything. I couldn't even find real statistics when it came to viewership, which was kind of frustrating. So this is going to be a little bit more of an esoteric statistics. The TV movie is based on the book of the same name, well, almost same name. The book is apostrophe Salem's Lot, and the TV movie is just Salem's Lot. Reason being, they thought that the apostrophe would confuse people because Salem's Lot is an abbreviation, of course, for Jerusalem's Lot. And so in the movie, I thought that for sure it was just going to be called Salem's Lot. But did you notice that in the movie, they actually called it Jerusalem's Lot at one point? Yeah, I did notice that. And it's funny because I feel like it wasn't, wasn't it something where Stephen King actually talked about maybe even having a different name before that? Even before it was Jerusalem's Lot, it was called something else, right? It was called The Second Coming. And his wife said that it sounded like (laughs) a, quote, bad sex story. So he changed it. Um 
and at first, I, I had a hard time figuring out what second coming like was referring to. If it was like the resurrection of the dead, what it actually referred to was the prologue of the book and the epilogue of the book, where Ben Mears and Mark Petrie uh, are. You know, they leave Salem's Lot and they come back. So it's the second coming to also. Uh, wow. I guess thinking of it this way, it's also Ben's second coming to Salem's Lot after having lived there as a child. So I guess it does huh. kind of apply. I feel like I kind of wholeheartedly agree with his wife, even though that's just like the middle school and the kid in me uh, who's just uh, like the second coming. Uh, oh, oh. <laughs> I lasted 45 seconds instead of 15 seconds this time. <laughs> second coming. Don't ever talk end. to my wife about that. <laughs> I don't ever want her to confirm or deny. What I just performed, <laughs> uh, hopefully she gives me the credit I deserve. The yeah. movie was originally supposed to be directed by George A. Romero, uh, you know, the zombie king. but The zombie godfather? Yeah, essentially when it became a TV movie, he was like, peace, I'm out of here. And the reason it became a TV yeah. movie was Warner Brothers got very tepid about making a, another vampire movie, given that Dracula 1979 had come out. And Nosferatu also came out, so they just whipped it up and had it schlocked onto the TV. It was originally, the first draft was written by Larry Cohen, and the producer, Richard Kobritz, called it, quote, really lousy. So then <laughs> it was completely redone. But Larry Cohen is interesting to me because he told he wrote God Told Me To and It's Alive. So those are kind of fun. The script ends up being redone by Paul Monash, who produced Big Trouble in Little China. So this is not, you know, amateur hour. I didn't mention this. Right. I should have mentioned it. God damn me. I should go back and change time so that I could talk about George A. Romero and then Toby Hooper. But I just ruined everything. This is going to be my second coming. <laughs> I'm second coming to the topic of directors. But Toby Hooper, director of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Poltergeist, Life Force, he was the one who directed this. And you would never know because this is the blandest film of all time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's funny. I feel like every time you say second coming, it reminds me of uh, that god-awful Arnold Schwarzenegger film, uh, Pumping Iron. Where he talks about coming on, like, while he's, like, lifting weights. Oh, geez. Are you familiar with that or no? No. For some reason, I thought you were going to go with Sixth Day because it kind of has, like, a biblical <laughs> sound or whatever. No, no, no. Arnold Schwarzenegger talks about the pump. And it's basically when, like, his, all of his adrenaline and, like, everything is pumping through his veins. And he, like, lifts weights, like, in front of everybody. And he talks about basically how he's coming in front of everybody. Nope. It feels just as good as coming. No, thank you. <laughs> So just I want to make sure I, I drive a point home. The Larry Cohen who wrote this movie and the first draft that was really lousy and ended up writing the sequel of Return to Salem's Lot is not Lawrence D. Cohen, the guy who wrote the adaptation for Carrie. Lawrence D. Cohen also did the Tommyknockers and It. So that guy has a lot of acclaim. Larry Cohen, kind of a schlockmeister. But, you know, we have some great things for it. I feel like Cohen, I don't know if it's spelt exactly the same, but aren't there, like, some kind of famous uh, directors, right? The Cohen brothers? Is that something similar, or am I, like, imagining No, that? It, well, it, they're not related, at least as far as I'm aware. But they could be, because I'm also dumb. <laughs> Won't rule it out. And also... I mean, Google knows, but... Eh. I found it really odd that Rotten Tomatoes gave this movie an 88% fresh when the oldest review that they have on the website is from 2002 <laughs> that's kind of disingenuous i'd think but um oh well now brian i think it comes to your and my favorite part of the show nicknames 
Are you ready? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's do it. I mean, I feel like uh, I have my own set of nicknames and you have uh, yours. So I feel like maybe we could just collaborate between the two and kind of go from there. I think that's a great idea. So we'll start with David Soul, 37-year-old David Soul, who plays Ben Mears. <laughs> let's, okay, let's just reiterate here. David Soul, the 37-year-old who is playing the, what, 25, 26-year-old? I think he's uh, like 32 in, in the book. Because he'd already been really? married and is she he... died, and then he's like he's already uh, mourned her well, loss for a couple of years. Okay, I, I guess I guess that's true. I, but I he's just... still older than Susan. He's like thirty two, and I think she's like twenty six. Whereas in this, it's like he's thirty seven like and he... she's thirty. Right. I don't know. It, it looks like he's he can be her dad, basically. Yeah. Anyways, let's, he looks let's more like on. her dad than her dad, <laughs> if that's any credit. Um, <laughs> I had thought about calling him Hutch because he was Hutch in Starsky and Hutch. Uh, he also actually appeared in one of my favorite movies. Uh, a which is very underrated Magnum Force, which is a sequel to Dirty Harry. Uh, really actually fun movie, uh, but I think that I'm going to agree with you because we've already kind of pre-gamed before the show started, and I know what you're going to say, and I like it a lot. <laughs> What's that? What, what would I call him? You said elbow patch because all of his jackets have the <laughs> stupid professorial elbow patches. Yes. <laughs> It was either gonna be it was either gonna be elbow patch or just pompous. I don't know because I mean I feel like he's so full of himself. That, oh yeah, you know he especially like all of the like product that he has in his hair like throughout the movie. <laughs> yeah, he's got smug written all over him. It's not fun. Uh, we go on. I figured uh, James Mason, who played Straker, this dude was in Lolita, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, North by Northwest. This dude is a very acclaimed actor, and he was mediocre as balls in this. And shoot me down if you feel like you need to, but I think I have a good one here. <laughs> I want to call him not Vincent Price. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I like it. It's definitely fitting. I don't know. The only thing that comes to mind for Straker is constipated. I feel like throughout the movie he looks like he's about to lay a fat one, but he but, but he can't. You know, he's just I imagine like he's like. Excuse me, do you know where I could find some emodium in this town? <laughs> it's like the struggle is real, man. It's like throughout the time, you know, he's in his car moving back and forth. He just has like this look of like grimace in his face. Yeah, you know how well, there's lots of corporate sponsorships when it comes. This is brought to you ad free by, and I think it'd be Pepto Bismol <laughs> or Preparation H. That's what it is. He walks around with a tight little ass he's afraid his hemorrhoid's gonna burst and then barlow's gonna suck up his butt blood did you just say butt blood i did <laughs> so, i like it speaking of barlow or uh kurt breika that was played by reggie nalder who complained that his goddamn contact lenses hurt poor guy his face is everywhere and i don't think he gets any residuals for any of this stuff but um i had a feeling you're going to shoot me down on this one. Okay, go I have for no it. idea why I want to do this one. I like The Office quite a bit as far as like non-horror content. It's probably some of my favorite. And there's a famous scene where <laughs> Michael Scott is showing a <laughs> mnemonic device by giving people nicknames, which is what we do on this show. And he calls one guy Baldy and then immediately says Sugar <laughs> Boobs. And I want to call Kurt Barlow <laughs> Sugar Boobs. <laughs> For some reason, what comes to mind is uh, Little Nicky when the guy has the tits on the, on his. <laughs> Kevin Nealon? Yes, I love it so much. You're not going to tell mean, anybody was... about this, right? Larry's so hairy. Right. I like it. So, sugar boobs? Sugar, sugar boobs. boobs. 
I like it. Right. I, you know, I was going to go with Kurt with a K, but that totally works too. <laughs> I feel like we, we can interchange them. I'm okay with that. Uh, we then go on to Fred Willard, who played Crockett. You'll know him from Anchorman, Best in Show, Wally. If we're going to go with Anchorman, calling him diversity is pretty great. Yes, right. That's what it was when I was uh, explaining to Michelle. I was like, dude, that's the guy from Anchorman. She's like, I have no idea what we're talking about. I was like, diversity is an old wooden ship built in the Civil War. And she's like, yes, I know exactly. Exactly who that is. There you go. <laughs> Great actor. Like he's in so much fun stuff, and that dude works nonstop. So I'm happy that he was in this. Uh, we'll move on. Jeffrey Lewis played Mike Ryerson. The only reason I mentioned him, he was in Devil's Rejects, and he's the guy who prays for all the puppies and the kitties when okay. Otis Driftwood says, "You know, I am the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's work." Bleh. Interesting. Interesting thing about him too is his daughter is Jillian Lewis. Did you know that? Dope. I did not. Yeah, the chick. Who is the that chick from? Uh, she's from uh, Natural Born Killers, right? That's her oh, name. Okay. Right? Jillian Lewis. Dude, you're probably right. Hold, please. No, no, no. Let me see. I'm not trying Natural to fact check killers. you. I just don't remember. <laughs> Natural Born Killers is great. Juliet Lewis. There we my go. My bad. Okay. I said Julian Lewis is Juliet Lewis. Moving on. Oh yeah. W- what do you want to call him? Uh, puppies and the kitties. Mm, I don't know. Yeah, puppies and kitties. Uh, Juliet Lewis's dad. I don't know. <laughs> cool. Uh, we go on to a Bonnie Bedelia, who played Susan. Okay. We know what she is. She's, you uh, tell us, She's Brian. Boom Boom Bonnie. Oh. I was going to go with Holly Gennaro, but Boom Boom Bonnie No, no, great. no. I, I thought that's, that's, that's what you said. You said Bonnie, right? I- Bonnie's the actress. There's a Bonnie oh, in the story as well. okay. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that's sorry. right. I was doing actress name. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Definitely Holly Gennaro or McLean's wife. <laughs> or Mrs. McLean. Mrs. McLean. I like it. Holly McLean at yeah, the end of the movie when she's like proud of him and she's like, right. it's McLean. Yeah, it's it's not Gennaro. As if like, it's some kind of goddamn commercial for like, from McLean goods. For like fucking three quarters of the movie, it was uh, Gennaro until like the very end. And she's like, okay, it's McLean. <laughs> I think what it is is she's hoping he's going to die from the wounds that he incurred and she wants to make sure she's on that life insurance policy. <laughs> yeah. No, no, definitely. no. I'm, I'm McLean. No, no, no. For sure. <laughs> yes, sir. We then go to Lance Kerwin, who played Mark Petrie. He was in Enemy Mine, which I don't know if you've seen that movie, but in it, Dennis Quaid raises an alien baby, which is weird. Um, he was also, uh, he was an integral part of the movie Outbreak. Uh, you might ask what character he played. Quote, American mercenary. So his career just skyrocketed oh. after Salem's Lot. Well, I mean, I thought it skyrocketed regardless because he was in Star Wars, right? He's Luke Skywalker. <laughs> Close enough, man. Wait, that uh, that's... Oh, honestly, no, that's Mark Hamill. Oh, Jesus. Oh, whoops. <laughs> Mark Petrie, Mark Sorry, Hamill. Ugh. Lance. <laughs> Fuck, with a name like Lance Kerwin, how do you not walk around without a sweater tied around your shoulders? Fucking Lance. Am, am I just making up? I feel like he has a strong resemblance to Mark Hamill. Oh, he does for sure. Okay. That hairstyle and everything. Yeah. All right. I'm not making it up. All right. Let's just move into the substance of this goddamn story so we can get this episode over with. We have some good friends over at the Dark Multipod, which is my good friend Brad Munson, who's an author and an orator and an all-around good guy. When I told him we were doing Salem's Lot, he was like, oh, Good luck. And this is a guy whose whole podcast is about doing Stephen King work. So, yeah, my butthole is puckered and I am ready. (laughs) You want to get into the sleigh-by-play? Yeah, let's just jump right into the sleigh-by-play. Perfect. We start off in Zimico, Guatemala. 
which is not Los Zapatos, which pisses me off. If you're going to change something from the goddamn book, why are you going to change the fucking south of the border town? You know why it bothers me, Brian? Because I know what Los Zapatos means. It's the shoes. And then Zimico, I don't know what that means. I can't be bothered to Google it. They're ruining my vibe already. I don't know. It just seems like it's such a minute detail to change. Why? You know what I mean? I feel like you're putting more effort into changing it for, like, authenticity purposes than actually, like, giving it, like, original content. For sure. And so they get some holy water, and suddenly it starts glowing, and he's like, they found us again. They do this cutesy little special effect. And then later on in the movie, when they have holy water, and they're next to these vampires... It doesn't glow. So that was annoying to me. Yeah, absolutely. And then it cuts to two years earlier. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a little strange. I feel like um, it's funny how he reacts when it first starts glowing. It almost seems like it burns him. Like he's holding it and he's like, oh, ow. And then he like looks down and it's glowing. Did you notice that or no? Yeah, well, it's the light bulb behind the bottle that's burning him. <laughs> One of the things that's great, okay, I usually don't get into gaffes. I don't, I, you know, I appreciate that people are making a movie. If you look later on, I think it's the second time that they come around, when they're holding the fucking bottle, it is supposed to be what is emitting light. And yet, if you look, you can see the shadow of their hands holding the bottle on their chest, thus showing that it is underlit by a blue light. And I was like, God damn it! Toby Hooper! <laughs> You made life force, you fuck. Right, right. And it's funny because he, like, you know, the first couple minutes, obviously, if you haven't seen or if you haven't read the book, like, I feel like you kind of are just wondering what the fuck's going on, right? You're like, I, I'm, I'm not sure. They both are kind of staring at each other, like, strangely, and they're awfully quiet. And he just says, oh, they're coming for us. And I don't know. There's nothing really kind of explaining what's going on, right? It's less weird than the book. Because in the book, it's like the tall man and like the dark-skinned, semi-naked boy. And he's like, do you love me? And it's like, I'm not saying it's weird because of homosexuality. That's fine. I don't like the fact that there's an age disparity there. And it's like Mark is a catamite. It's, it's not cool. It's semi-pedophilia. It, I don't know. <laughs> again, super not homophobic. Very inclusive. It's just... It is so purposefully vague that I didn't understand. And you'll see multiple times as we compare it to the book. The book is very, like, almost antagonistically provocative, where it's trying to do these very sensational things that are just, like, obtuse and weird. And so in you makes you kind of look at the intro with a different lens. So whatever, we'll get into it. But it cuts to two years earlier. Another glaring change that I noticed and no fuck face on IMDb seemed to notice. The population in the movie is 2013. In the book, it's 1,319. So <laughs> what the fuck? You know what's funny is I did notice that. I just thought to myself, like, 2013 sounds like such a specific number. And I was like, oh, man, it would have been really cool if it was 2019. <laughs> the, the year of our Lord, 2019, yeah. from which we are recording this podcast. So if you're an alien or an extraterrestrial who found this podcast after the end of civilization and you're listening to it, you know how long has passed. This is a little timestamp for you. We go, Ben drives straight over to the Marston house, and there's already a car there. And then Mr. Straker comes out. And at first I was like, oh, is that going to be Mr. Crockett? Because it's a guy and he has hair. Right. Naturally. Right. But then he's all creepy. And I was like, that's 
that's not nice. Yeah, um, I don't. I don't. Right from the get go, we have a huge deviation because they focus on Straker being bald so goddamn much in that book. I mean, it's integral to his death and everything. So yeah, it, take it away, Brian. Yeah, I mean, it, exactly. I feel like it's it's something where they go into like fine detail. I say they, like it's more than one person. Stephen King goes into more than one detail uh, over great length about how incredibly bald Straker is. And it's, it's, he's just like mm-hmm. this lurching man with um, this super pale skin and a bald head. And I feel like it's like over and over and over again that they're describing this. And then the first thing you see is this dude with like a full head of hair. <laughs> and a facial hair too. And so one of the things that is interesting to me, he has hair and then Barlow is bald, but in the book it's the reverse. So I feel like when they took these characters, they put them together and they divided them. And so you know how you could do like add two and four and equal six, but then you can also add three and three. My theory is this. They put the two together and they had the number six and they took the six and they divided it and they had a completely different set of arithmetic. And that's the way we ended up with these characters because, you know, in the book... You have great scenes where Barlow's talking and he's very loquacious and it's very interesting. And then in the movie, he goes, <laughs> that's the extent of his language. So Straker becomes his mouthpiece. So I feel like put them together, you took them apart, and now you have this. We're taking too much goddamn time because nobody gives a fuck. Let's get into the substance. No, I mean, I, you know, they might. It's it's definitely an interesting idea behind it. And, I mean, I don't feel like we're delving too much off topic because it still has to deal with uh, Barlow and Straker. And uh, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think uh, Straker in the book just seemed like more of a menacing character that had few... He had a few lines here and there, but it wasn't, it wasn't so much of what he was saying. It was more of what he was doing. Whereas Barlow was the, the sophisticated one, like you said. Whereas in the movie, they absolutely... They did the complete opposite of that almost. It was... It's almost then, as you, if you know, he, Straker becomes his handler rather than his familiar, right? Right, exactly. And, you know, there's a lot of things I feel like you can't really be mad about within the movie because there's only so much you can do with the constraints that you have. It has to be, you know, within this much budget. I feel like we talk about it a lot where these movies are really have to deal with budget where if they really had the time, they can uh, develop Barlow into uh, a better character. They can give him some lines. They can do this or they can do that. But instead, they're just like, well, let's save time. Let's make him this like Nosferatu looking dude. And, and yeah, we'll I go think from that, there. So first and foremost, before we delve any further into the movie itself, I actually really like the changes in the book, like the story. I think that the consolidation of characters makes a lot of sense. I think that some of the stuff that they cut makes a lot of sense. I think that my issue is really the acting is terrible. The cinematography is bland. The set design is lacking in a lot of areas. You know, it's very uninspired, but also, I mean, it's a TV movie. This is not you know, you know right, Oscar right. date. This is, you know, you get home, you crack open a cold one, as you do, Brian. I would probably have uh, probably something closer to a tea. Okay. And we watch this. A cold brew. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, Brian, I need to ask you something. This is very important to me. Okay. Did you notice that Ben Mears runs two fucking stop signs in the span of 20 seconds? Yes. I yeah. lost is my that- mind. So that's when he goes right into town, yep. right? And there's like these two, they're the two lines where they clearly distinct uh, people in like a, a cross, like a crosswalk. Yep. And he's just like, well, I'm going to make a left right here and just plow Fuck through this Fuck y'all. Thing. I got shit to do. Right. I got to go ask right. a guy yeah. if I could rent a house where somebody's clearly living. Doy. But we get our introduction <laughs> to Mark Petrie, who's just standing in front of a shop window. 
versus the book where he beats the ever-loving fuck out of Richie Bodden, who accuses him, oh. and he says, quote, I bet you suck the old hairy root, and then Mark kicks his ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. There, there's some crazy instances in the book. I mean, I'm not going to go into detail. I feel like you'd be a little bit more elegant in, in describing uh, some of the things that happen in the book, but there's some, like, major uh, <laughs> instances where it's, like, some, some bad shit's being said. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's no bueno. No bueno. <laughs> Dated very poorly. And I get it. Like, it's one of those frustrating things. These things are said by people who are bad people, and so you're like, oh, well, that's one of the things that helps establish they're bad, the fact that they're homophobic, the fact that they're, you know, exclusionary. But the fact is, it's still being said, and it's still cringy. So we go from there. We enter Stryker and Barlow's Antique Goods, and there's immediately a taxidermied mongoose fighting a snake. And I was like, that's interesting. I don't know about you, but I feel like I would like that. That's something I feel like I would totally have in my den. Sorry, but not sorry. It's (laughs) badass is what it is. And you know, this is something that I do every movie. I'm like, oh, there's symbolism here. What's the symbolism? Let me delve into it. What is it? You know, and then I was like, no, this is just a thing that they found because Toby Hooper loves taxidermy and sure as shit later in the movie, it's like taxidermied stuff because for reasons. Yeah. I mean, if you're remaking a movie, you got to add your own touches, I guess. So uh, why not throw a little something in that you like? It seemed a little we're overlooking it or we're delving too much. in. I, I shouldn't say overlooking it, but we're delving too much into it as far as, yeah. oh, he likes this or that. You know what it's I mean? It's just a visual component. Um, I, right. Honestly, I wish right. it was involved more throughout the movie as opposed to one taxidermied mongoose and then later on because it's, it becomes integral, which we'll get into. Right, right. But, you know, the thing that kind of comes to mind for me is like when you're thinking of like an antique store. I don't think of <laughs> taxidermy animals, nope. right? <laughs> it seemed a it little was. strange. We cut across the street. You got Crockett and his secretary. Um, this is a very interesting consolidation because, like you said, Boom Boom Bonnie in the book is Bonnie Sawyer. And she, her, literally the only thing she does is sleep with uh, was Corey Bryant, who's the repairman. Whereas in this, right. she actually has a role beyond that. So I guess it's a little bit redeeming to her character, but... You know, well, yeah, and and then also in the book, she is basically a secretary to Crockett, but it's nothing really other than that. Like it's something that he kind of, if I remember correctly, I feel like he he right, he totally kind of creeps and pervs out on her a little bit, but it nothing really becomes of it, right? So they meld characters From together. There, right we establish Ben can't rent the old Marston house. He then gets sent to Eva Miller's boarding house. He's kind of a prick to her, not very ingratiating when he's like, I'm not a stranger. When he's just trying to be cordial and he's like giving her these short, terse answers. I don't know. It's kind of like the Lewis Creed thing. I just don't like him as a character very much. Yeah, yeah. I was going to agree with you on that. I I feel like he's just a kind of a smug son of a bitch that's like, uh, it seems like he's coming back to the small town. Like, I'm an established writer. Uh, Everybody look at me. Yeah, right. it feels, especially in this comparatively, in the book, he hides the fact that he's writing a, you know, a story about the Marston house. Whereas in the movie, he's like, hey, did you know I'm writing a movie about this or a book about this rather? Right, and I think the right. thing that's frustrating, it's like he's being a vampire himself and like siphoning this interesting story from this town. And he's being opportunistic and almost manipulative in taking this. Um, 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we talked about this earlier where we had said that in the book, I feel like it's, what, 300-something pages in uh, out of a 420-page book before he says, okay, yeah, I'm writing about the Martian house, where in the movie, within 20 minutes, he's like, so I'm writing about the Martian house? Check it, dog. (laughs) We then go and we establish that Susan is a teacher at the elementary school. Her father is a doctor. That's pretty cool. And then he tells yeah. her about his wife's death in the introduction. So th- these are things that were just very weird in the whole introduction. But Brian, actually, I kind of steamrolled because I feel like you wanted to really exemplify the pervy weirdness of our good friend Mr. Mears in that scene. Yeah, Mr. Uh, David Solis, a.k.a. Mr. Patches, he sees Susan reading in the park. And he's just like, well, let's check out this unsuspecting girl minding her own business behind this tree over here. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, he sees a book just so happened to be written by him. And that's where he acts like he's Mr. Hotshot. Like, oh, wow check out that book who do you who do you think wrote that i don't know exactly what he said i feel like it's something along the lines of uh, i'm a douche please sleep with me but you know something about lecturing her when it comes to keeping a book on the ground and you know you shouldn't have a book like this because it'll ruin the spine yada yada and she's like oh hey that's you by the way and he's like oh, oh me is I just, it oh wow i hadn't noticed that it was myself oh god what a coincidence will you please fuck me now in a park <laughs> It's it's weird, right? Because he immediately goes from like talking about the book. She's like, "Oh, I didn't finish it. You know, I read the other book that you had written, and that's why I have this book." And then all of a sudden, he's just like, "Oh, let's have dinner." Or what does he say? He says something like, uh, "You know, do you want to go out tonight?" It's like very like yeah. To and the she's point. clearly she's clearly buying what he's selling. She's like, "Can I sit on your face, please?" He's like, let's go to a movie and be Christians and hold hands. And she's like, take me to the lake and fuck me savagely. It's very aggressive. But all this has happened before it's even 13 minutes into the movie. So they blaze through a lot of stuff. Yeah, I mean, in the book, it's definitely something where, you know, they're taking their time, they're establishing the relationship. Ben is there for months versus this movie. He's there. This all happens within what appears to be a couple days. Right, right. And, you know, with a book, details, what is it? The devil is in the details, Mm. right? And that's where everything is really kind of like you get the saucy tidbits here and there. Um, They got to move along. You know, they got to keep things going. I'm not sure a lot of people want to look at the developing romance between Susan and Ben when it comes to a vampire flick. Well, they'd rather watch the adulterous affair of Bonnie and Crockett. And here's another weird thing that they changed. It's Reggie Sawyer in the book and Cully Sawyer in the movie. No idea why. Yeah, that was really weird. It was really weird. Cully, that just seems like a strange name. But then again, you know. It could be weirder. He could be Macaulay, Macaulay Culkin, Culkin. (laughs) Moving on. So they end up at Ben and Susan's date, and they're in front of her dad. And this is something I had a note about, you had a note about. I'll let you take it away. But let's just talk about how misogyny abounds. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I feel like the one thing that uh, I take away from the whole dinner is where the dad talks about, oh, you know, I hear you're staying over at uh, Eva Miller's boarding house. Oh, yeah. The boys and I used to watch her. Was he say something like sachet around town in her, you know, I slim think he's figure. a little bit more subtle than that. I think he's like, we used to watch her flop her titties all over the place. <laughs> 
is that yeah it was okay. yeah it was something it was something like that right and then you immediately kind of get like that cringe yeah. and you're like oh god and then in and front then of his wife even, and daughter and his daughter's on her right. first date with this dude and then and then even worse is when his wife is like men and the, and susan's like men like they just are like oh them boys acting like dudes boys will be boys right <laughs> free pass locker room talk Yep. Yeah. And then, and then not only that, but I mean, fuck, dude, the dad's on a roll. I feel like after they, uh, you know, have their little dinner or whatever, as they're walking out, he apologizes you know, he says, for her peas. <laughs> He's along the lines of the peas. I was what like, the what fuck? the fuck, man? Yeah, I literally put that down when I'm like, okay, apologizes for his wife's peas, dash, more misogyny. So first, he, you know, effectively belittles her by speaking about another woman in front of her. And then he's like, yeah, this broad can't cook worth a fucking shit. <laughs> and he's supposed to be like this educated yeah. doctor. I'm like, God, that's yeah, so weird. Yeah, it's, it's definitely something where you're like, oh, those times, right? <laughs> yeah, and then another weird change you have is that Eva Miller and Weasel are married in this, but then they got divorced, and then he still lives with her, as opposed to Eva having been married to another guy who dies, and then she uses a life insurance policy to start the inn. Yeah, but I mean, I feel like even in the book, though, I feel like she had an affair with Weasel. I don't think it's an affair. It all happened after his death, but she still believes that she's married, so she still believes that it's wrong. got it, got it. It was years after his death that it even happened, and then it had been years since then, but it's still treated as very scandalous, which is one of the weirder things. Right, right, right. Meanwhile, he has like, like rampant adultery actually happening. Right, right. And one thing I want to know, as far as within the book, Susan's dad is actually kind of a likable dude. Super it's funny, likable. in the book, in the in the book, it, it reminds me a lot of, like, my dad. Yeah. Right, where he's kind of like a jack-of-all-trades. Blue collar. He, he knows a little bit of everything. They go outside, they play a little badminton, you know, you know, just kind of an all-around likable yeah, it's dude, it's one of those good right? things that Stephen King does where it feels like this could be anyone's dad. This could be anyone's uncle. Like, it feels very familiar and lived in. I actually really like Susan Norton's dad in, in the book. In the movie, I think that it, he's one of the better actors, if that's any credit, but I don't think that the character is written very well or compellingly. Right. It almost seems like he combined some of the not so favorable characters within the book to Susan Norton's dad. Yeah. As far as like you look at the guy who had the, the little baby who turned into like a little vampire baby, oh, yeah. I guess. You know, he, he just like beats the shit out of his wife. He doesn't really care if she beats the shit well, out of her kid. He threatens her for it, but it's still weird. The whole that whole thing. That's what I mean. It's that whole provocateur bullshit where he like. I feel like that Stephen King just being like, "Hey, you want to see how far I can push this? Here we go." She punches this baby twice in the face in the first scene with it. Like that is so ungodly, uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, it was really bad. It. I mean, I feel like we're kind of going off topic a little bit. You know, we're we're talking about the book and the movie, so I guess we kind of have a little room for uh, I guess wiggle room. I guess. Yeah, when I was reading that, it definitely made me think of, especially you. You know, with the new child and everything. Like, man, it's kind of had to well, have been a little clarify, hard. Clarify: never punch, never punch the baby. <laughs> I might shake her all the time. Uh, I might violently bite her, but this is no, kidding. no. You know what I mean. Kidding. You know, I, essentially what I mean is for you to read something like that has to be yeah, it was be pretty revolting. hard and I, it was very weird and the thing is like, it has no payoff really except for I mean I guess when the baby turns it's like perfect and pristine after having turned it's just like you said it's like a shocker 
right? Yeah, and so let's move on from that gross weirdness uh, and get to the gross weird character of Susan Norton's ex-boyfriend who, in both this and the book, it's like, no, they're still dating. She just totally ditches him because Ben Mears comes to town. Well, you were the old piece of meat, and uh, I don't know if you noticed this guy over here. He's an author, so uh, deuces. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he has patches on his elbows, so get fucked. And Ned or Floyd, whichever is your real name. I feel like, um, did we happen to skip or gloss over the part where uh, Gillespie comes up to Weasel and, and talks to him about Ben Mears? Oh, yeah, exactly. Effectively threatens him to stalk him. We did. I, th- I thought it was kind of interesting how he basically kind of somewhat threatens Weasel into, like, uh, spying on Ben, right? Because that kind of sets up Weasel and yeah. Eva in his... In his bedroom so you know he goes up to weasel and weasel definitely i feel like is portrayed by an actor who definitely steals the show a little bit because i feel like he truly is drunk throughout the entire movie (laughs) yeah Yeah, he chews the scenery a little bit but he's good i like i think he does a really good job of a character that in the book depending on how you read him and depending on your life experiences i think that you might like the character more than other people in my case he the character kind of reminded me of my uncle jimbo but i think that the casual reader probably wouldn't have had that kind of experience so to see this guy kind of bring him into three dimensions, I think did a good job. So let's go back to um, Sue Norton's ex, ex, I guess you would call him. Not so much ex, kind of ex. Well, you're kind of on the side until I'm ready for you again when Ben Mears leaves. Yeah, you know, I thought yeah. uh, I liked him as a as a character. I liked him as an actor. I don't, I'm not, I feel like the character's name is different than it was in the book right it's not it's not Tibbetts yeah it's Ned in the movie and Floyd in the book so was that the same last name or no yeah same last name so it's it's Floyd Tibbetts versus Ned Tibbetts which again it's just like that has no consequence but okay and I wonder if maybe they're doing it to remind you like hey this is a movie this is not the book so these subtle changes are kind of literally like by name a reminder that this is a slight deviation right 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 so so are we now at the point where she sees Tibbetts in in the street right and then yeah in his van right in the van okay so that's is that the, that's not the part where they're at the school right that's that's further on right it is okay. so they have their talk uh, she tells ben that she used to live in new york and she was an ad agent and then she lost her job so she had to move home which she called retreating he tells her about the book and then they get taken to the lake that's their whole like first date and then the next scene really is the at the school you have mark on the stage doing this play okay got it got it got it yeah ben mears goes and talks to instead of matt burke it's jason burke who's the teacher and they talk about whatever, how he used to be in the school play. And then as they're leaving, she has the confrontation with Ned, that's who's right, there in his right. plumbing truck. So that must be when Ned, it's Ned, not Floyd. So that's, that must be when Ned says something along the lines of, you told me that you loved me, right? Or is that mm-hmm. in the previous instance? Okay. No, so I think it's that scene, yeah. Right, it's in that scene, which is really kind of crazy, right? Because you, you can imagine anytime anybody says, I love you to anybody in a relationship, like, that's not something you just really just throw out there willy-nilly. <laughs> yeah, and in the book, it seems like it's as if she has almost an arranged marriage with Ned, the way her mom, her being Susan, of course, the way her mom is, like, constantly saying, oh, Ned this, Ned this, Ned, to the point where she, like, slaps her mom in the face for being a hoe. And then in the movie, she's not as squeaky clean and like he kind of has a justification to be like hey you literally just said you love me a dude walks into town for a minute and then you bail and up until that point aside from him saying hey get in the van he hasn't 
illustrated himself to be like malicious. So it's kind of weird. Yeah, definitely. I feel like, you know, it was, it's, it's strange to the point where I almost felt bad for the dude, right? Even though in the book, mm-hmm. you're like, I can care less, right? In the book, you're like, I don't yeah. even care about this dude at all. Exactly. Because in the book, there's never any implication that she's interested at all. Like they've gone on dates and she's like, yeah, yeah, I let him feel my tits, but he got me an extra large popcorn. So what about it? Versus in this, she says that she loves him and it's like, um, what? Yeah, it was, it was a little weird. But, um, you know, did you notice the, his sweet-ass fucking rape van as he drove away? Mm. Well, yeah, it's <laughs> no good. Uh, one quick note. When Mark is on stage doing his little play thing, it's the rendition of the town's history. That's where you get the reference to Jerusalem's Lot. And we have there a fan question about that later. So don't you think I fucking forgot it. It is there on my legal pad. And then, I mean, you can't help but notice, too, I mean, this is after the fact, but the, both Danny and his brother are on stage with Mark as well, mm-hmm. right? Getting your money's worth out of those child actors. There's a little bit of foreshadowing as far as, you know, who these people are. You kind of be like, oh, wait, I thought I saw them reenacting some bullshit. But it's good because it, it comes into play later in, in one of the changes I actually really like about the movie. So we kind of glossed over... Barlow gives instructions to Crockett to arrange for movers, and it's going to be Barlow in the box. And that is almost no, no, exactly no. verbatim to the book. That's that's Straker giving instructions. You said Barlow giving instructions. So it was, well, it's Well, naturally, right? that's what I meant. I am obviously an <laughs> idiot, Brian. Thank well, you. Well, hold on. I mean, well, I just want to make sure we're all correct here. I'm not trying to, you know, correct you and everything. It's just I want to get the name straight. And uh, uh, it's, it's You will refer back to the record. Brian, if I could have the stenographer read back our notes, I called myself an idiot, so I was agreeing with you. Well, I mean, I'm not trying to rub it in. It's S-T-R-A-K-E-R, so. It's (laughs) F-U-C-K-E-R. Moving on. (laughs) I like to think that there's somebody out there who had to like, you know how you can listen to podcasts like 1.5 speed? They're like, wait, what? And so they listen at like 0.5 speed, so they go F... (laughs) You, what the, oh. (laughs) Okay, so yes, Straker gives instructions to uh, Crockett. No, not uh, Vincent Price gives them to Best in Show (laughs) or the old diversity ship. Get your shit right, Brian. I I hate to fact check you on the air, my friend. (laughs) Oh, man. People who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stone. People who live in the house from 13 Ghosts shouldn't throw stones. Boom. That's a 90s horror reference for you. Yes. So Barlow gives uh, diversity uh, information on (laughs) (laughs) how he should have his uh, movers have four stout padlocks. And I feel like it's funny that he says stout padlocks because in the book, that's exactly how they're described. Yeah. I mean, I wrote it down verbatim. I mean, it's the same number. It's the same instructions. I thought it was great. But then it's cool because they take it and they slightly adapt it so that you have the Cully... He's the mover, and he hires the two other guys. You got Ryerson, you got Tibbetts, and then he has them go off and do everything alone, and he goes off and catches his wife with her adulteress. So it was carnivorous lunar activities, so let's call it adulteress <laughs> lunar activities. I like it. Harkening back to our An American Werewolf in London episode. Even though it looks like she's uh, in like a jazzercise outfit, Dude, I'm not exactly sure what's going on. Uh, don't think my wife's gonna lip us into this episode because she's not on it but that totally worked for me <laughs> i see where you're going with that dude if she had busted out a thigh master right there whew, whew, 
I would have had to buy that movie instead of renting it on YouTube. Hot damn. I don't know. I feel like, uh, I mean, if we're going to rate, if we're going to rate Bonnie, uh, out, if we're going to rate Bonnie outfits, I feel like the, uh, the old little skirt, uh, you know, business, uh, skirt outfit thing she wore when she saw Coley. And she was talking to him at first, you know, when we first uh, get introduced to Cully and how much of a kind of a sleazeball he is where he's like, yeah. give me another beer, bitch. I don't know. That kind of did a little bit more for me than the uh, Jazzercise outfit. But, I mean, we're, talk- we're yeah. all just talking hypothetically, though. I love well, then they both show. lose out to the book where she wears literally just an apron and high heels. And I was like, in a doorway? <laughs> you mean like anybody could see? Ooh. <laughs> You know what's funny is that totally reminded me of, I mean, I'm sk- skipping ahead, but like, you know, when they do actually do the deed between uh, Bonnie, Boom Boom Bonnie and uh, Crockett, she's like looking out the fucking window like, you know, oh, where is he? Oh, my, I can't, I can't see where he's at, but um, I have these curtains and I'm not going to mind, you know, have everybody mind their own damn business. I'm just going to sh- flaunt this shit to the world, right? Yeah. And then it's weird because Cully is sitting on the steps under the porch light drinking beers and she can't see him and then when crockett gets there he looks off of the porch and he looks directly into the you know area where cully's standing behind a tree and neither of them see him and he is not a tiny fellow this is not a ninja this is more of a bulbous bebop type <laughs> character as opposed to your master splinter he essentially reminds me of a human form of slimer from ghostbusters dude <laughs> who was based off of Jim Belushi. I think it was called Onion Rest Head in peace. the original. Yeah. Nice. Nice. But I feel like we, we kind of skipped over the part where Tibbetts and uh, Ryerson meet at the graveyard, right? That's where they, or is that yeah. where they meet? Well, that's and he coming, says yeah. like, hey, oh, is that is that after the fact? I'm sorry. Well, no, we, we went from, you know, because we're talking about the same Ooh. common theme, we did skip ahead, but you're right. It's fine. Yeah, where the dog, do- uh, the dog whose name is Doc gets killed. Right, but it's not called Doc in the movie. It's called Faithful for some reason. Yeah, really yeah. annoying. Not a fan. I like Doc. I think it sounds better, but yeah, whatever. So for some reason, Doc the dog sounds like it makes more sense than Faithful the dog. I don't know, especially because Faithful is like such an asshole in the movie, right? Like they're not really like a nice dog at all. I don't, I don't know. Well, That's in just me. the movie, he just gets murdered and it's because of like, you know, superstition and omen. because He's a black dog with white spots over his eye. And in this, you never really see the dog alive to my recollection. Yeah, no, you do. It's oh, it the growls. Dog, and, it's, right. and it's growling and barking and you know yeah, yeah. Cully's like will that dog ever shut up fun fact he does <laughs> and and then that's when we go to the whole bonnie scene Ooh, sticky. <laughs> Ooh, uh, gross <laughs> well yeah and it's funny every time we watch a movie uh, i say we as in um my wife and myself we see an animal and she's like yep it's dead <laughs> you know, any kind of you know pet cutesy dog this or that no it's probably gonna die yeah because it's exploitative it makes me upset the mm. only time I've ever been okay with a dog death is John Wick. And it's because it I could totally see going on a kill crazy motherfucking rampage because somebody killed a dog. If you want to kill somebody in my family, I'm like, I'd be mad, but I'd probably let the police handle it. But if you kill my dog, it's like... I mean, I, I can see that, but I, I was kind of thinking or leaning towards Cujo. Oh, but, you know. different, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if a dog is pissing acid on people, um, well... <laughs> Spoilers! Yeah, sorry about it. <laughs> All right, so uh, we cut to the movers. They're moving the box. 
Uh, you got Tibbetts who's like, oh, it's cold. It's unnaturally cold. Hey, Mike, did I tell you it's cold? Because the box is cold. And I'm like, shut the fuck up. Like, this is one of those times where you're insulting my intelligence. Like, yes, I get it. It's cold. One line is enough. 22 lines is excessive. Right, right. What? In, so what, uh, if you remember correctly, didn't Straker call it something else as far as what it's called, like Birchwood or some shit or uh, Hepplewood or something like yeah, that? Yeah, it's some kind of yeah, piece of furniture that I couldn't I be bothered to Wikipedia. Uh, we can, this is where it kind of goes back and forth and back and forth, which I kind of like. Because it goes from that and then it cuts to uh, Mark, who's doing his theater kid practice with the Glick Boys. And then it cuts back to the guys with the box, and then it cuts back to them, and back to the guys in the box. Um, you learn through Mark's, you know, rendition of everything that the man who built the house, the Marston house, was Joshua Vaughn, who killed his wife's servants and himself. And then Hubie Marston killed his sister and wife with poison, and then young boys, which is, it varies from the book, but I really don't, it doesn't bother me. Um, I thought it was kind of weird that he was like a mob you know mercenary and then he was also a satanist so this kind of even made more sense so i was okay with it right right and so did you like the fact that the glicks actually got to mark's house and it was only after they left that something happened because i think that's a vast improvement you know i don't it's i feel like it's it creates new dialogue between mark and the glicks so that's definitely interesting i kind of didn't really like it i i thought they should have stuck with the whole we never made it and mark kind of is left wondering where the hell they went that's just me i feel like i as far as books are concerned i i'm very like rigid when it comes (laughs) rigid i just said that right when it comes to the structure of the book i feel like they should follow it to a certain degree and it just seems like such a small thing for them to switch that i like um, it if i may let me advocate for the movie because it gives Mark a reason to feel guilty because it's like, you know, if, if I would have done something, if I would have sent them home earlier, if I would have gone with them, I could have saved them. Versus the other version where it's in the book where they're just coming over to look at his fucking toys. And I was like, kind of hard to feel guilty in that scenario. Whereas it also makes their death a little bit more real because like he saw them. He saw them. He's the last person really to see them before they get abducted. Right. But that's just... Yeah, yeah. That, that makes sense. But also at the same time, so in the book, they have this like really long dialogue about different things, counting stones um, that you really don't see within the movie, right? Yeah. I, I feel like they completely skip out on the dialogue between the Glick brothers and it almost seems like they're just minor characters. True. You see that the wind blows and that's actually kind of a cool effect. Then there's the figure in black that rises and it cuts back to the movers. They're putting the... Oh, yeah. So it cuts back to the movers, then it cuts back to Straker, who's carrying like a boy-shaped parcel into the basement, and then you can tell that the crate has exploded, which is very interesting. There's a deviation here, because in this, he clearly seems to be giving Ralphie to Barlow so that he can eat, versus in the book, he like sacrifices him to Satan to like hearken the coming of Barlow. You notice that difference? It's that's a pretty staunch difference. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's one of those things. Uh, I got to hate saying that because I say it all the time. <laughs> it's just one of those. <laughs> but oh, no, sorry. Right. Exactly. Made for TV. Right. Mm-hmm. You're, you're not going to you're not going to be sacrificing some little baby child on um, made for TV. Eight, eight o'clock, seven thirty fucking primetime TV. It's just not going to have especially in 1979. Yeah. And then one of the things that's weird when Straker comes into the basement, 
he doesn't seem to be closing the door, and then he just leaves. I took that as Ralphie has to be dead, because if he comes and he wakes up, he's going to run away through the open door. Let's move on. It cuts to the primetime Jerry Springer event of the you know two-part feature where Crockett is exposed for having the affair. You got Cully with the shotgun, and he says one of my favorite lines ever. He makes fun of this guy for not slinging his dick all over his wife and being butt-ass naked in his house. He goes, I like your shorts. You must like them too, leaving them on like that. Like, please, rub your taint <laughs> yes. on my sheets. That's effectively what he's saying. <laughs> yeah, he's like, where'd you get them? And you can clearly hear him say, Boston. <laughs> Excellent. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's it's weird. I, I you know what? I, I feel like they could have skipped that and gone with other bits of information or you know a different scene just because I don't really feel like it's necessary for you to see Coley um, find Crockett cheating on his wife it it seemed like i don't know it was a it's needlessly scandalous yeah it was just like a shocker to be a shocker you know what i mean and like you don't even find when i saw the movie i feel like i would like absolutely despise cully and i you know throughout the movie like him in the graveyard next to faithful and he's like will you shut that damn dog up and he throws a beer can at him and stuff and you're like okay this guy's like generally a dick whatever and then he finds crockett cheating on his wife and he does you know the whole incident with the shotgun i'm moving ahead but whatever he nothing ever happens after the fact right as far as like him getting killed like i feel like that would give me gratification more than anything is to see him turn into a vampire but instead you see him just like drive away with like bonnie and toe and you're like well i guess that's what happened to that situation you know what i mean to clarify the scene you find out you know cully has crockett put the gun up to his face he pulls the trigger it's empty crockett runs out of the house terrified in the movie you then see the back of barlow's hand which is weird because crockett makes it out of that situation one of the more effective elements of the book i thought was when Corey bryant the guy who's been sleeping with reggie's wife boom boom bonnie he gets caught, he pisses himself, He same exact thing, runs out, he's like running back to his truck with pissy pants, and then there's Mr. Barlow, and he's like, you know, you deserve your retribution. So when he turns him into a vampire, that's a really cool scene, whereas in this, it's like, why was Barlow there? Because Crockett escapes him, so it shows that Barlow's inept, and then he dies from a heart attack. And not because of being bit or anything. Yeah, that was kind of ineffective. Yeah, exactly. And did you happen to notice how disturbing the whole scene was in the book when it comes to describing uh, Crockett, like, grasping the shaft of the shotgun and then putting it on his mouth and tasting, like, the oils of the gun and everything? Whereas in the movie, they don't even show him. I don't even think he puts uh, his mouth over the the barrel of the gun, right? Correct, yeah. Yeah, that was... and the whole thing, I think it's meant to make, you know, it's neither party is correct because in a cringeworthy scene, you have Bonnie who's afraid to sit or she can't sit down because she's in so much pain because her husband has raped her so many times. So it's like, you know, you go from victimizer to victim. And it, again, it's like this weird provocateur. I just don't really like it. It's not it does. There's no substance there that's interesting. It's just cringy. So I'm kind of grateful that they glossed over that part. But 
the fact that they have it at all shows that the book and the movie kind of lack a lot of substance otherwise. Yeah, and then, I mean, even in the in the movie, which is really kind of strange incident also, is the whole dialogue between Cully and his wife and Crockett while he's in bed, right? It just seems really yeah. weird where he's just like, uh, you know, Bonnie says like, oh, he, ra- he was trying to rape me, right? And then... You know, yeah. and then Coley starts having a, you know, dialogue between him and Crockett saying, oh, you're a rapist. Well, let me kill you. And then she's like, no, don't do it. And he's like, why wouldn't you want me to kill the rapist? It was it was all really weird. Yeah, which it, there's a brief line like that in the book, but then they, they elaborated on it in a very uncomfortable way. I agree with what you're saying. So let's just let's move. Let's move from the rapey scene. <laughs> Let's do you it. You got Ben and Susan at the lake. You know what they're doing. They're going to the bone zone. The consenting bone zone. Yeah, but you know what's funny is it's like they're out of all the places that like an aspiring artist, uh, you know, this like well-established author could take a uh, some girl that he wants to date. Instead, he's like, well, you know what? When I was a young chap in middle school slash high school, I used to take these girls to the lake. What do you think about that, right? I feel like it's something that, like, kids do when they, like, want to sneak off and, like, neck in the woods somewhere. And he's like, let's go to the lake. Yeah, well, and that's one of the things that, like, shows that she's really, like, drinking his Kool-Aid because she wants to go to the lake with him. And in the book, they do a good job of explaining why they bone outside is because Eva Miller's like, you're not having any hanky-panky in my house. So that kind of is weird. But their consensual lunar activities are interrupted by Crockett's horn blaring, and he's had a heart attack while driving away from Barlow. Right, right. And that's just a weird scene. Yeah, and it's funny because when you go back to it, it almost seems like Ben knows more than he should because he kind of describes it. Yes, like why is he so suspicious? Right, exactly. He describes it like as it's happening, and I mean, it's all happening off screen, so you just hear like a door open, shut, and and then another car screech and turn off. And then he's just like, oh, it sounds like a traffic jam up there. And you're like, okay, I get it. You're supposed to be like the narrator of the movie or something. But like, I don't, I don't feel like you should understand what's going on. You should just be like, well, that sounds weird. Let's go check it out. Yeah. Experience it with us. Don't tell us what's happening. Yeah, exactly. Then we have the scene where Ralphie goes to Danny's window. That starts the whole vampirism of his brother. We then cut to Ben Mears doing the investigation. He finds some fabric. It's black fabric. And they're like, oh, Straker always wears a black suit. And then the next scene, he's wearing a gray suit. (laughs) And I laughed so hard. Like, I get it. I get what they're trying to say. It's like, oh, it must be his black suit. But it's just so funny because it's like, it's as if the movie fact checked itself. And he was like, Fuck you. I have a gray suit. Yeah, absolutely. Gillespie Constable, right, as he likes to be called throughout the book, he has his suspicions with Ben, right, when all these things happen because it's like a new guy coming into town. And, you know, it just makes sense to investigate him. But then you look at the movie and it's like, no, definitely, we want your help in investigating this missing boy uh, who you are also a suspect of potentially being the guy that (laughs) kidnapped the boy. Yeah. I'm also going to call the FBI on you, but thank you for this integral evidence, the only evidence that we actually have in this missing persons case. Yeah, it was a little weird. (laughs) Yeah, and then, so, his explanation with Straker to the cop is, well, I have two black suits, and (laughs) he's like, all right, I'd like to see them. Okay, and so when he's effectively shooing the cop away, he says, ciao, and 
I think that this is one of the few instances where this movie fucking nails it and does an even better <laughs> job in the book. Because in the book, he's just like, oh, you learn something new every day. It's a, an Italian word. But in this, he's like, I didn't know you were Italian. And he says, I'm not. The word is. That is so fucking gangster level roast battle. Like, you so dumb. You ain't even know etymology. Entomology? Etymology. Which is the one which is words and which is bugs? Uh, I don't know, man. I don't know. All I can say is... I actually know. I'm just not going to tell you because I'm super smart. There you go. You are smart. Absolutely. You're showing me up. I... Super smart. <laughs> it's it's him basically saying, yeah, you're just some small town piece of shit cop and uh, don't get on my level, bruh. And so do you know why I said super smart like that? Because Susan, for some reason, has a job interview in Boston, which doesn't happen in the book. And I don't even know why it happens in the movie. It serves literally no purpose because she comes right back to Salem's lot okay. like nothing. So how about, how about this, though? Did you notice the weird conversation between her and Ben where she was just like, well, uh, so I'm going to be staying out in Boston for a few days. And then she quickly says, it's with a girlfriend. And then she says, would you like the number to reach me? And he's like, yes, I would like that. Like, how fucking creepily mm. controlling does uh ben sound right i mean that's what i get from it i thought you were saying that she was like with a girlfriend wink wink yeah i don't know and he's all like oh let me take off these elbow patches (laughs) i don't know ladies he he just sounded super controlling there where she was just like she was kind of hesitant on like telling him all about it and then she did and then he was like oh well okay i guess and she's like no don't worry i mean i'll be i'll be staying with with a girlfriend like a a friend that's a girl and he's like oh okay and then she's like well i'll give you the phone number to reach me and then he like totally like kind of feels a little better he's like oh thank god i can totally keep like tabs on you throughout your time in boston i don't know it seemed weird it is but it's very indicative of the time Uh, and also she doesn't have a cell phone that he can reach so if she's going to be gone for days it kind of makes sense but i agree the fact that she was like she doesn't Say, oh, I'll call you. It's here's the number. Let me placate you, good sir. Is a little frustrating. Right. Uh, we have the scene where uh, Danny Glick is at the hospital, and for some reason they're giving him an infusion of purple grape juice instead of blood because <laughs> it's clearly not blood. And then Ralphie comes in through the window, which is super fun. Right. Now here's something that's frustrating. You know, I, I go back to the, the ritualistic sacrifice with Straker. And let me ask you something. Did it bother you in the book where Straker is doing this whole thing to hearken the Dark Lord or whatever? And it ends the chapter with, quote, it became unspeakable. And I was like, that's a cop out. Do you mean to tell me you viciously narrate some lady punching her baby in the face? And then you're just gonna be like, eh, Satan, it, it got really bad. Let your imagination run with it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, yeah, to be honest with you, I don't really remember that part as far as in the book. Yeah. Um, it I obviously wasn't uh, memorable. And that's why, because it doesn't go into detail. Right, yeah. I don't know. I, I clearly remember a baby getting punched in the face, but I don't remember that. So uh, obviously that worked for Stephen King. So let's move on. Uh, oh, yeah. Fun bit of trivia. When Ralphie's outside the window, you can see the smoke moving in reverse. And it was done as a strategic thing to make the scene eerie. Whatever. No one cares. So then we go to uh, Danny Glick's burial. This is frustrating because all of it takes place under like what appears to be the high noon sun as if we're going to have a fucking shootout at the OK Corral. 
because this is where Mike Ryerson, of course, goes into the grave and he starts to like get all loopy and has this compulsive need to open the casket. And then this, he opens it. Danny sits up and bites him. Yeah, but it's in direct sunlight. Right. So that right. bothered me. Yeah, that that was. I think the scene would have been good. It just that one change. That was a little weird. I I, re- I really wish they would have gone into a little more detail as far as uh, the urge for Ryerson to open the casket. Because, I mean, yeah. they, they go into great detail in the book about, well, I don't know. Did we close the eyelids? I feel like they might be open. I don't know. That's something that should be done. So maybe if I open the casket and close the eyelids, it'll be something that will make me feel better. Well, maybe the eyelids are going to be bad. Or I feel like there's something along the lines of, you know, I don't know if I'd be able to shut the eyelids. Well, I have a couple pennies. Maybe I'll just put pennies over the eyeballs and yeah. that'll make me feel a lot better. I really want to open this casket, right? And Instead, he's just like, well, oh, I don't know. I just have this urge. And he just goes and opens the casket. There's not really any kind of, like, explanation. Yeah, he, like, bargains with himself by going, he's like, oh, yeah, I need to do this. Uh, It doesn't need to be done. And it kind of shows, like, this is not his brain working. He's being compelled to do this. Right, right, exactly. And you know what's funny is I remember directly reading about how he goes into detail about the the dirt getting into the hinges of the casket when he opens it right Mm -hmm. do you remember that yep i do so the whole thing you know like i said i think it's like that's like a seven that could have been a nine for a scene in terms of adaptation um if it would have had a the better lighting and b something to show kind of his devolution into madness even if he was like muttering to himself I think yeah that might definitely definitely some sort of internal dialogue we then cut from them we go to uh the petrie household mark can hear his parents talking about him which is you know that happens in the book he listens to them through this vent and then his dad comes in and i thought that was a really interesting scene because in the book the dad's described as really stuffy and logical and in this he kind of evoked that kind of nature but it shows that he's making an effort to kind of meet his son on his own terms, you know, interested in the things that he's doing. And then you get the little breadcrumb to the fact that the kid is obsessed with Houdini and being able to be an escape artist, which comes into play later. Whereas in the book, it's just like, hey, Houdini's cool. I can suddenly escape Right, things. right. I really, I really wish they would have. That's one thing where they could have taken after the fact, obviously, but... Stephen King could have definitely gone into detail on on how Mark all of a sudden just like would go into like a meditative state and understand how to escape all of these knots, right? Because that just seems a little strange. Yeah, because he just does a book report on Houdini. He doesn't actually train in this stuff, which makes it even weirder. Like at least in this, it's like, oh, I have tied myself up. I know what I'm doing versus the book where he's just like, I read about this guy. So I'm suddenly going to be an expert in, you know, transcendental Right. And, you know, I feel like this is where I had told you before, where I feel like it almost seems like Stephen King wrote himself into the book, at least in my eyes, where I feel like he kind of is Mark Petrie to the point where he's almost omniscient. He knows things that, like, I don't feel like a, oh, yeah. a 13, 14-year-old boy should know. And he's, he's smarter than everybody else. He knows all the stuff about vampires. He knows all about the town. He's very, I can't recall a single instance where he's like, oh. Yeah, exactly. So it definitely, in the movie, uh, translates a little better as far as him telling his father, like, hey, I can get out of, uh, you know, these handcuffs or I can get out of this uh, these knots. Do you want to try it out? 
And that makes it a little more believable to what happens a little later. And the scene ends. We move on. We cut to Ben and uh, Jason Burke having dinner. Uh, and this is where Mike joins them and is like, well, I don't know. He has these holes in his neck that are clearly holes in his neck. They're clearly scabbed wounds. But these two people who are sitting next to him and trying to figure out why he's acting weird don't notice them. You got Burke invites him back to his house, kind of like the book. Well, this was effective. It consolidates everything. It explains why Ben's so involved and why he knows. Did you like it? Did you hate it? What did you think? No, yeah, I, I liked it. I, one thing that I remember distinctly from the whole bar scene is when they go to the bar and they say, uh, "Hey, what will it be?" And they'll say something about an old, like a, a something Canadian whiskey. And he's like, "Oh, must yeah, be a home." That was weird. He's like, "Must be a hometown boy." And then Burke's like, "Oh, he is." Oh, ho, ho, ho. like it was like and some like, kind this of is like Maine. <laughs> yeah, it's like some kind of like a uh, hidden meaning behind it. I don't know. But yeah, it definitely sets up the next scene when it comes to, uh, you know, Ryerson being at Burke's house. And uh, yeah, I, I, I like it. It, it definitely uh, transitions well. So then we cut from that back to Mark. Then you have Danny trying to have Mark invite him in. Mark picks up the toy cross, just like in the book. He holds it up. You know, you got Danny boy. Do you like that? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know what? I wish they would have had, again, I feel like some internal dialogue because I remember reading in the book where he started rhyming to himself to kind of break yeah. the trance. Right. And I feel like that's kind of smart. It's something childish. It's something that's believable that a kid would do to be able to break a trance between him and a vampire. It's like the fist to the post, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then so he gets Danny to leave him the hell alone. Ryerson ends up dying. We then go. Ben goes over to Burke's house for the whole death, just like in the book. He comes back to Eva's house and he says, I'll just have a coffee and get some sleep. Bro, do you know what coffee is and what it does? That's not what you do. <laughs> right, right. So uh, remind me if this is what happens, right? He walks up to his room and then he gets kapowed in the face, right? Is this where Ned Tibbets fucking slams him in the face? With one punch, Ned Tibbets, he doesn't look a goddamn thing like One Punch Man, but he hits just like him and right. sends Benny Boy to the fucking hospital intensive care unit with one punch. How about this? I, for a second there, I had no idea where the fuck he came from. I thought he was like the Kool-Aid man and just plowed through the fucking wall. Oh, yeah! <laughs> there was like a, some sort of changing kind of, you know, like girls will change behind like a little fake wall. Where like, does that make sense? Or like, not a fake wall, but like a little fake, what would you call that? Like a dividing kind of foldable? Partition. Is that what it's called? Sure, I don't know. Like a girl would like hold their like, you know, like a bra, like over the little partition, like showing that they're taking off their bra or whatever. Oh, yeah. It was something like that, like in his room. And then all of a sudden he just like fucking plows through it like a Kool-Aid man, basically. He's like, I got you, bitch. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It was pretty cool. And then if we can, it frustrates me to no end that they changed Floyd's name to Ned instead of Mike's name to Ned because then you have Ned Ryerson. Ned! Ned the Head! <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Watch that first step. It's a doozy. And that's what I say when uh, Ryerson later falls out of the fucking window and disappears. Yeah. So now you know how my brain works. So Ned pops him in the head 
Right. I made a I made mm. a fucking a rhyme right there. Then we have Ryerson sitting in the rocking chair with the glowing eyes, and that's when Burke's like, "You can't. You're not invited to my birthday party anymore. Get fucked, Mister Man." And then he has a heart attack. I really, I really like that scene. You know, it's. Yeah. I feel like there's added dialogue in the movie than there was in the book. If I remember mm-hmm. correctly, I don't think it's exactly like that, but it definitely sends a little creepiness vibe out there. Yeah. Especially, you know, with his glowing and the eyes. the effect and, on the eyes is great. Right, exactly. So, you know, I dig it. I dig it in the movie. So then we end up, Barlow gets Tibbets while Tibbets is in jail. It's very interesting. You establish at this point that Barlow is this force. He's not sophisticated. He's not eloquent. He's just... <laughs> And one of the things I found interesting, and tell me what you think, because I had to supplement this with other material. So in this, you have Barlow and his two front teeth, his buck teeth are the vampire fangs, unlike everybody else who's their canines. Even in this movie, the other vampires have their canines. And so I did some research. When you have Father Callahan, he ends up in the book, The Wolves of Kala, in that he finds out that there are three types of vampires. There's a type one, which is what Barlow is. There's a type two, which can also spread the vampirism. There's type three, which can't spread vampirism, but can spread stuff like HIV. And so my theory is this, that the reason Barlow's fangs are different is because he's simply a different type of vampire. That was exhausting. What do you think? Was it worth the research I did? Yeah, absolutely. That definitely makes sense. And it's coming from somebody who had read, I don't know, I think three quarters of uh, the Dark Tower series. I appreciate the nod towards uh, the Wolves of Kala because that is probably my favorite book out of the series. And without delving into too much, it's a nice segue between Salem's Lot and that book when it comes to Father Callahan. And it's something that I actually didn't know there was a similarity between Father Callahan in Salem's Lot and and, uh, The Wolves of Calla until after the fact. I read The Dark Tower beforehand. So, uh, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. So then we go there. Ben tells Susan, you got to put Hawthorne on the house. And I was uh, like, Nathaniel? What, What the fuck is happening? It turns out that hawthorn used to sometimes be referred to as white thorn and people would leave it on the cribs of their young to protect from witches there is some literature referring to vampires but i kind of like the idea that he's just like yeah put something on there i don't know magic is bullshit just put the hawthorn up there like that misguided all monsters are the same thing use a silver bullet to kill frankenstein who cares just make it happen (laughs) yeah i don't know i didn't understand what it was i knew it was something to ward off vampires and uh Go for it. I'm not, like, the foremost on... I, I wish that she had a line like, Where am I going to find Hawthorne at this hour? Right, I'm, I'm not, like, the foremost on fucking vampire warding. It's not like I'm, like, part of the Frog Brothers. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. I think that's what we should have watched. But let's move on. The reason that he tells her to do that is because he and her dad are going to go check the body of Marjorie Glick, who's the mom of the Glick boys, uh, because she's just died. And so then this is where we go to Mark with Father Callahan and first real substance of Barlow. Right. And I don't think I don't think they really give a good explanation in the movie, at least, of why he's actually there. Right. I guess it's just assumed that he's I actually really liked it. Really? I don't know. Because in the in the book, Callahan goes and he's like supposed to explain to the petri parents like oh vampires are real and they're totally gonna kill us all and blah 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 versus the movie 
it's the parents who call Callahan over to have like an intervention right, from Mark. With Mark. And this is what they were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah. I suppose that makes a little more sense in in hindsight. I guess in the in the and it speeds things along. Right, and that's I guess that's where uh, it really just makes a little bit more sense now they mention it. Yeah. So then uh, Barlow sort of flies through the window, cracks their heads together in comical fashion as if he's Mo from the Three Stooges. That's what I thought. And then this is. A very fun scene where Straker then becomes the hype man for... So he's the Flavor Flav and Barlow's the Chuck D. And he's sitting there and he's like, he's the best motherfucker in the world. And Father Callahan's like, no, Jesus is the best motherfucker in the world. And he pulls out his cross. And so they barter the boy for Callahan to put down the cross. And I actually think that it, it, it translated pretty well cinematically. So Callahan, by failing to put down the cross, has effectively lied. Because he makes an agreement like, hey, I'll throw down the cross if you give the kid away. They give the kid away and he doesn't do it. So it makes him a liar. And then he starts to question his own faith and he's afraid. Barlow takes the cross. And he's like, fuck your Jesus, son. And in this, it's just vague and we assume that he dies. Brian, would you like to tell our friends, the mutant goons from beyond, what happens in the book to Callahan? Because that's my favorite end for any character. So with Callahan, it's definitely a huge difference between the movie and the book, right? Callahan, he questions his faith. The cross starts fading, essentially, between being some glowing uh, righteousness of God to being this little fucking plastic whatever it is. And so then Barlow's basically like, you know what? Instead of killing you, I'm just going to make you like my number one henchman. Sorry about it, Straker. And he like takes his, is it his finger and kind of just slits his throat a little bit. And then just like, yep. he's like feet on this bitch and he turns him into uh, essentially like the living dead. Right. Yeah. So, and just to clarify, cause the pronouns might've been confused there. Barlow cuts his own throat and makes Callahan drink his vampiric blood, which makes him unclean. And then like, for instance, when Callahan goes back to the church, he tries to go yeah, in and it- gets, you know, like this blast of radiant light and eat shit from what i remember reading is he tries to open the door and the handle actually burns his hand so bad that it almost leaves like a indiana jones uh fucking <laughs> burn on his palm like remember in indiana jones oh yeah or the joe pesci from home alone if you will with the doorknob oh yeah exactly exactly so yeah and i feel like they even they even uh, go back in the book uh, after the fact and uh, notice that there's a burn mark on the handle of the church, if you remember yep. that. And and then Callahan just goes off. You know, that's one of the things I liked about his conclusion is he's he's clearly dirty. Everybody treats him like shit. Everybody's suspicious of him because even though they don't know what's happened, they can just tell that something's wrong and he's just tainted. And they even make the reference to Cain and Abel. And I thought that was just such a tragic end for this character that was so much better than apparently in the original draft of the book, he cuts a vampire, the vampire gets pissed, the vampire cuts his fucking head off and hangs him upside down. And it's like, yeah, seen it. Yeah, exactly. And um, I really wish, obviously, you know, this is, if they would have extended the series to where it's like more than just two maybe three or four they could have gone into a little more detail as far as who father callahan was as far as struggling alcoholic yeah like they did in the book i think that's totally true and this is something like you know hey amazon hey shutter let's make this i'll play one of the cool characters i'll play the, the handsome young doctor i like that character who ends up dying <laughs> in a very comical way in fucking 
Fucking James Cody, huh? <laughs> well, he, he, he's just like, hey, these stairs are fucked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember, I, I imagine, like, uh, Goofy falling. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we end up going to the scene where uh, they're in the mortuary, and for some reason Marjorie Glick is in a hospital gown. Blah, blah, blah. You have Ben who makes a cross out of tongue depressors. Blah, blah, blah. They fight her off. Blah, blah, blah. Brian, I'm starting to bore myself. Can you walk me through this scene? Yeah. So essentially it is, uh, you know, Ben and the doctor going and talking about how Marjorie just apparently died for no apparent reason. But apparently there's some anemia going around and that might be the case. Pernicious um, anemia pernicious anemia yeah that's fancy so then yeah for some reason ben thinks to himself oh well this could get a little sketchy right he doesn't really explain why he's just like well here's some tongue depressors let me make them into a cross because i have the intuition of a fucking amazing writer and i think about this shit so yeah is it was weird it's effective right Mm -hmm. because it shows another vampire essentially in the movie i feel like the more vampires you have in the movie the better it makes it a significant threat that's the only part i really like about it also i mean like when you've consolidated these characters so much like in the book there's an exhausting amount of characters so you need an exhausting amount of vampires to threaten them and in this you've consolidated the characters so much that when you you know you have to do the same with the vampires and yeah i'm glad they didn't just keep shrinking those numbers too you know there's a good special effect here where he like stabs her in the chin or in this it's the face right versus the book where it's the chin with the cross and then she just disappears and floats away right right exactly you know what i i don't know for the time being i understand like you can't have some crazy special effects where she like dissolves into dust or whatever so for them to just kind of stop filming and then throw some smoke in the air and then continue filming i'm like yeah Yeah. eh, whatever it does the trick It, it got the job done in the book, I like it a lot because she ends up successfully biting Dr. Cody and then, you know, they use a tetanus shot and they clean it out and they use science to subvert the virus and he becomes normal again. I thought that was really cool. I wish they would have done that in the movie, but it costs money and I'm sure that they would have had a, a conniption fit of trying to get that much blood on TV. So let's move on. Susan sees Mark approaching the house and she follows him and then it's an interior of the house. And that's so that's that's different, right? That's that's a very different thing than what happens in the book. You know, I mean, yeah. I hate to bring up these. Sm- There's a cliffhanger to an entire chapter. Right. With the way that it is. Right. And I, I hate to, to bring up these small subtleties, but I feel like it's something where when you read the books specifically before the movie it ruins things right and i almost feel like to the point where maybe if we do this again where there's a movie slash book that we're gonna follow through we should watch the movie first and then go into the book well that's what i did with um with pet cemetery and i think that it worked in this i don't think it changes anything i think that, that the thing is, is that so many of these changes aren't of substance and then the one, like at a certain point, you get n- the nitpick fatigue where you're like, ah, do these things matter? But then this is one where I'm like, yeah, no, this does matter. This does kind of annoy me because, you know, I really liked that in the book. But then also I had to rationalize with myself. In the book, you can say a hand touches her on the shoulder and then switch scenes. When you do that in a movie, you're going to be like, is it a blue hand or is it a little boy's hand? Because once I know, 
there's no surprise. And so I think visually that kind of element kind of ruins it. Yeah, you know what? That That's very, that's very true. Uh, you know, it sets up a lot of things, though, as far as, like, him basically kind of judging how prepared susan is right where he's like what the fuck what is this piece of shit little thing you really think you're gonna stab him with that yeah and he has a legit stake and it's it's very interesting because it's like the condescension where it's like you're an adult i'm a child i'm ready for this yeah but when they go into the house um i thought it was pretty effective it's clearly a sound stage it's not a real house but they do a really good shot where they ascend up the stairs in a a very fun way we get more toby huber taxidermy as they pass a drawer full of eyes mark calls susan susan and not mrs norton or miss norton rather did that annoy you yeah i was like dog she's your teacher have some respect Right. And, you know, that also just kind of reiterates my thought process as far as him being somewhat of like a all-knowing kind of character. Like, I'm not going to tell you that your name is Mrs. Norton. Norton. I'm calling you Susan because that's your damn name. And then you get Straker. He catches him, ties him up. If if you hadn't had that foreshadowing scene earlier with the mention of Houdini, you would have thought the kid was praying because he had his hands in like the prayer position and they were tied up. But then he's like, oh, mama, hey, oh. <laughs> and then he escapes and goes about his merry way. Right. In the book, it's talking about his balls and he's tied up in a weird way. Thought it was much better to just get it over with and move on. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's weird to think about like a kid with the rope tied around his nuts and like, you know, making him super uncomfortable, but it was, it's funny cause I'm going to say this, but it gave a good visualization as far as like how well, how well he was bound. Right. And how much of a struggle it was for him to escape. And I don't know. Yeah, that's fair. Like, like what I remember correctly is he at one point had to kind of sacrifice his nuts to be able to get loose because it was like hurting him so bad to wiggle around, but it made it work. So it was almost like it. He had to sacrifice a little to escape. But you know, I think that's fair. I think it's the ultimate sacrifice (laughs) as a former teenage boy. I could tell you that if you were like, you could save the world. But it's going to cost you your nuts. They'd be like, that's a shame. I liked the world, by and large. (laughs) Anyway, we cut Constable Gillespie's moving his entire family away from the town for no reason because he's seen nothing happen. It makes no sense, whatever. And this is something that drove me crazy. He engaged in very poor gun handling safety. And he, like, slaps his pistol into Ben's hand with it pointed at Ben's stomach and holds the barrel at him continuously, telling him, like, oh, go ahead and take this gun. Yeah. And ugh. Yeah, and it, later on, he points the gun at Mark and continues to hold the gun at Mark when he runs into him in the house. It, that just drove me up the wall. I don't know why, especially in this movie, but, yeah. Brought to you by NRA. <laughs> hey, now, hey. Um, I'm not going to say Sandy Hook didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, that was really weird. I, I get it. it. It definitely saves time between uh, a deputy getting killed on the highway and, uh, you know, the gun being taken because uh, Dr. James Cody finds it because that's what happens in the book. So, yeah. you know, it definitely shaves a little time there. Gillespie ends up just being like a giant coward, which essentially in the book kind of happens i feel like it's more or less like i kind of lost control of the situation and i'm leaving yeah i feel like it's giving in 
not giving up. Right, right, exactly. Or he's just like, look, you're going to take the fucking town, whatever. Versus this, it's like, there's nothing I can do. I have to run away. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that's how they get the gun. Which, you know, it, it, it's it's an effective way of showing how they get rid of Straker, which is completely different yeah. from the book. But, eh, whatever. Yeah, so going back to the house, uh, you have Dr. Norton. He's upstairs. Uh, Straker closes a door. Norton gets close to the door. Fake Vincent Price opens the door, picks up Dr. Norton, walks to the end of this platform, and stabs him to death on a bunch of antlers that are pointed out. Makes no sense. He starts to descend the staircase like he's a fucking teenage girl on a prom night. And Ben's like, hey, I'm going to use every bullet and shoot you. But there's not going to be a squib, and there's not going to be blood, so Jake's going to sit there confused on his couch trying to figure out if it's been that Straker's bulletproof, or that he is getting shot, or that the gun has blanks, or what's going on, and then he's going to die. Right. I, From that whole kind of thing that happens between Dr. Norton dying and Ben killing him, I... I feel like they kind of took a little bit from the book when it comes to like describing how incredibly strong Straker was because yeah. that kind of they kind of go into detail about like him picking up like like insane amounts of meat like that weigh like at least 50 60 pounds of meat or something and he's picking it up with one hand and it it clearly shows him picking up uh norton and they show it's funny because they show like his feet like dangling off the ground and you're like okay yes i understand he's picking up like a baby child and then it's just like well here's some like uh coincidentally here's some fucking antlers on the side of the wall for some reason i feel like it reminded me of beetlejuice i don't know why Like the like sculptures and Absolutely. shit. Anyways, you know, it, it was a little strange, but you're not really going too far off from the book because fucking James Cody falls into a pit of knives. So how far off is yeah. it? And I like the ending and the fate in the book because you get Mark gets revenge and clubs Straker over the head and kills him. And then you end up finding his dead body that's been drained of blood later on, which is pretty interesting. I get that you can't have a kid murdering someone on TV. So whatever, this is fine. We just, you know, again, it just gets things moving on. We go... Mark ends up falling in the same booby trap that gets uh, Cody in the movie or in the book rather, but there's no knives, so he's fine. He just hurts his ankle. They open the root cellar. They, you know, it's at the actual Marston house instead of at Eva's house. I thought that was actually beneficial. Like, let's just get this moving. The whole conspiracy of the blue chalk really annoyed me in the book, so this was good. Yeah, yeah, that's that's just extra bullshit. I feel like it's kind of fluff in the book. It's like they they just kind of like dance around the idea of where this blue chalk came from. I feel like it's like a chapter and a half of them like discovering if it's in fact like a, a an elementary school or something. And you're like, I don't need to read any of this shit. Yeah, doesn't even matter. He ends up pulling out Barlow. They pull him out of the den. Barlow, they open up the lid of the casket, coffin, sarcophagus, whatever you want to call it. Barlow hypnotizes mark mark tries to attack ben ben throws him to the ground hold on one second though i have to mention though and this happened in the book and the movie and i feel like out of all the things that they could include from the book into the movie is when ben is smacking the shit out of the lock and he breaks it even in the book he breaks like a bookcase and then he he turns to mark and he says i love you 
Did you find that a little weird? Yeah, but I mean, I felt it like, I don't know, the healing power of love or something. It was, it just didn't make sense. It was was, like that one didn't feel like catamite bullshit like the intro because you've established the characters for so long and you don't think that there's anything weird like about it between them. It's just weird that you would be like, I love you in this scene where there's no consequence for it. Right. It was, it was really strange. And I mean, in the book, they cleanse themselves with the water, with the holy water Mm -hmm. before they go there. So they have almost like an, like an, like a, like a holy amount of strength in them where he just like swings an ax and you can see like a blur of like light after he swings the ax. Like it's almost like he's in like world of Warcraft and he has like some super fucking buff, or something, right? Or Dynasty Warriors or something. Yeah, I get what you're saying. I'm picking up what you're laying down. Right. So, I don't know. I, I, again, I just feel like it's a little weird when he he breaks a lock and then he looks at Mark like, I love you. <laughs> it just seemed a little weird. Yeah, if he would have said it to the wrench or the axe or whatever, I was like, that makes more sense. Saying it to the boy, kind of weird. So then dispatches Mark. Then in the movie, I like it because it's a little bit more violent. He knees barlow in the face like he's jose aldo and then gets on top of him stabs him a bunch in the heart and then dude melts and that's the main vampire and we cut back to zimmy kikiko guatemala that's it and so when they get back to guatemala oh no excuse me they burn the fucking house down and he's like i'm sorry susan forgive me not knowing if she's even in the fucking house and then there's a skull in the moon and then we cut to the epilogue. I don't remember the epilogue. What what exactly are you... Oh, so they cut back to Zimiko, Guatemala, and you have the glowing holy water, and they go back to their little hut. That's right. That's right. So so they go back to you know their hotel. They're just hanging out. All of a sudden, they get the, the shining light again, and they're like, oh, shit, one of us has found... Someone has found us again, yada, yada. And uh, he kind of just walks into the room knowing who it is, right? I feel like this isn't like a... I, I have no idea what's going right. on. Like, he knows it's Susan, right? He just walks in like, bitch, I knew it was you. I smelt you all along. Yeah. That's creepy. But... <laughs> Uh, you know, he just like walks in and she's just like, oh, Ben, I miss you. I love you. You're like the sweetest thing ever. And then, you know, he goes in for the kiss, right? And he's like, psych, bitch. And he has a fucking steak and the end. So he tries to woo her with a filet mignon. Ah, not that kind of steak. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So her eyes are closed when she's saying all these sweet things. We can be together, blah, blah, blah. She opens them up, yellow contacts. Then they cuts to her having fangs. So it's kind of weird editing. He kills her. They pack up their shit. They leave. That's the end. Jesus, Jiminy Jillikers Christ. I kind of want to get into some quick trivia and our fan questions before we do our final review. Does that sound okay with you, Brian? Yeah, absolutely, man. So, hold on. Before, sorry. Go. Let me just, let me just. Do it. Let me Don't just apologize into to this, me. right? This is your podcast. Take it. <laughs> I feel like the end of the book is a little better to me. Burning a motherfucking town down? I like the thought of them going back to reiterating how the town was originally almost burnt down to the ground. And they say this throughout the book. And they don't ever really talk about it. They talk about it once when they talk about the play. Yep, exactly. But that's it. So if they were to go back to it where they say, okay, well, there's a bunch of dead brush over here. What would happen if I were to just strike up a light and or strike up a, you know, a cigarette and flick it? Boom. Done. All of them have to go flee and do whatever, yada, yada. And it actually ties into uh, the sequel. But eh, whatever. Exactly. So our friends over at the Copulators Die First podcast ask, who is Salem 
and where is his lot? Wise asses, <laughs> I have a very thorough response for you. Salem is short for Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the prize pig of Charles Belknap Tanner, who lived many eons ago, and the pig had a lot, and that is where the town got its name. And also, the town is in Maine in Cumberland County. That's as thorough as an explanation as I can give you. Booyah. And in the sequel, when it comes to, I believe the guy's name is Booth, Tukey and Booth or something. It's sort of some weird names. But they, they go into great detail about multiple people being missing from Cumberland County and the surrounding areas. So that's something that is brought up into... Uh, into the story as well. So Absolutely. Uh, our good friend Brad Munson from the Dark Multipod makes the comment, he draws the comparison between the father and the son, even comparing the way that Ben and Mark end up to something of Lewis Creed and, you know, analyzes, it's almost as if the father and the son are combining forces to attack Oz the Great and Terrible, which I actually thought was interesting. I think that there's some, a, a very long essay to get into there. But his direct question was, do you think any vampires survived? And if so, why didn't Stephen King revisit this source material in the next 40 years to follow? And asks, do you think there will ever be a legitimate sequel? Uh, Brian, take it away. Uh, so there was a sequel. It ends up being a, a short story. And this, when I say short story, I can't tell you how many pages it is directly just because I read it audible version or not audible, but uh, Kindle, I'm sorry, Kindle version. So, I mean, it gives me like percentage wise, I'm not sure how to really translate that. But yeah, it does go into detail that a lot of the vampires ended up having to flee and go into the surrounding area. And um, there was multiple cases with sheep and lambs being slaughtered or cows or cattle whatnot being slaughtered and their insides being ripped out because you know vampires have to feed somehow and also even in the book ben you if you read there's the clippings from the newspapers that he has and there's lots of you know issues with the town things going bump in the night so on and so forth that establish it right right exactly and then you know i feel like there are definitely some i guess tidbits of information where you can kind of translate into another sequel but i feel like you would need a uh, proper remake before that i agree i think that's very true the way that they deviate in the return to salem's lot i don't even know if you want to address it because honestly we might end up doing it at some point just because i'm a weird completionist like that but yeah i do think the vampires survive also i mean i think brad's clearly being kind to us and giving us some podcast fodder because he also reiterated to me that father callahan was in the wolves of Callus, so clearly he knows that in the stephen king pantheon they do but i think the bigger part of the question becomes why didn't stephen king substantively like revisit it and it's interesting because i saw a bunch of articles talking about you know he had originally conceived father callahan having his own kind of story and it's starting with him in a soup kitchen but then that's what the wolves of Calla was i don't see that king really revisits his stuff very substantively at least in the experience that i have with it and so i think the real question becomes like why hasn't somebody done a great sequel to this and i think just like brian said it becomes an issue that you would have to do a good remake before you could do a good sequel yep absolutely you don't want to step on anybody's toes and i mean to give stephen king credit well he had other shit to work on so <laughs> yeah and uh so th i found an interesting fan theory online that mr barlow is actually pennywise because pennywise is a shapeshifter do you love it or do you hate it because i kind of hate no, it no i don't like it i feel like it's pretty far reach but i mean i appreciate the uh imagination yeah i think it's callahan 
talks about in the book that he had a boogeyman all his own named Mr. Flip. I think Mr. Flip could easily be Pennywise, but I don't think that Barlow could be. Yeah, agreed. And then I think the last thing I really wanted to talk about was Ben refers to himself and says he's going to try being a ghost breaker, not a ghost buster. And I thought that was weird. So I Googled it. And in 1922, there was a film in Denmark called The Ghost Breaker, which is about literally exercising a castle of ghosts that was remade in 1940s in the United States. So when he says Ghost Breaker, that is not a misnomer. He is actually referring to a film, The More You Know. Huh. So Brian, let's rate this some bitch. Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to Salem's Lot, Jerusalem's Lot, The Second Coming, I definitely feel like we need to throw it in the category similar to, I would say, Pet Cemetery. And that's weird saying that because I feel like it's obviously two Stephen King films. So are we going to grade two Stephen King films against each other? Or are we going to put one against the other? And, I mean, I guess I'm going ahead of schedule. I would call it a classic or uh really yeah i mean that's just me even though it's made for tv and i believe i'm probably butchering it because i feel like we have something a little more clever than just calling it classic but yeah even though it's a made for tv it's uh something that i feel like they just they were working with what they could with the time that they had and the year it came out i mean you can't really have a lot of super violent shit going on in 1979 it's just not gonna happen i think that's fair i think if you're giving it the golf style handicap yeah it makes sense if this was just a film independent of the considerations i think it's probably just a tragic in to be perfectly blunt i think the book i don't even think that the book was great i i think that's one of the things that's hard if i was gonna compare it to pet cemetery i think pet cemetery is a better book i think it's a better movie i think that but it's also uh, the efforts of a much more experienced and seasoned writer who's not just throwing everything against a wall to see that sticks you're not having everything from adultery to spousal abuse to violence to infanticide and all this stuff you're having just what you need to get well i guess you do have infanticide but you know what i mean um and i guess you do have adultery too wow i guess it is the same thing but maybe just dialed back a little bit (laughs) but yeah i think to be fair i think you're very fair i would put it in the classics category I don't think it comes anywhere near an American Werewolf in London, so I think no, we are not no. dethroning the current, you know, Stably Cup champion. De- definitely not dethroning, and also I feel like it's something where I don't feel like I would necessarily. I guess I would. I would actually make it a better movie if I had not read the book. Right. Does that make sense? Like, I feel like. Yeah, I think that's true by and large with everything. But I think that in this situation, it just the acting is so wooden that I think that reading the book actually did the reverse for me because I actually could be like, oh, well, I know in this scene, this is how he's supposed to feel. Or I I know that this is this person's motivation versus in the movie where it just it's just so bland that without that, I think I would have tuned out a little bit, to be honest with you. Right. Yeah. You know what? That makes sense. And now that we kind of talk about a little bit more i feel like it's kind of a gray area between a classic and a tragic if that makes any sense yeah because there's not enough camp for it to be a slashic which is good bad i mean there's one line where i laughed which was the chow line other than that there's nothing there so it just doesn't don't feel like it's fun to laugh at either so it's either that you're appreciating it given its faults and also its impact culturally it did have a significant impact or you're just saying, eh, you, you can't give it a pass and you have to throw it out. Either way, it's not bad enough 
to be Chud, and it's not good enough to be an American werewolf. So I think that in the pantheon of the slashers, it's just kind of there. Right. It's a, it's the middle of the pack. Yep. So, Brian, is it time to say goodbye to the mutant goons from beyond for this week? My typical uh, little spiel here. Uh, if you ain't watching them dying, you ain't really trying. And for Jake and Brian, I will remind you to go out and do something you love. And remember that all work and no power play makes Jack a dull boy. Uh, yeah, how's it going, sir? Um, is there anything I could help you with? Yes, I was hoping to get some publicity because I'm opening an antique shop with my colleague, Mr. Barlow. Mr. Barlow, um, can you, uh, can you spell that for me, please? (laughs) I'm sorry, you'll have to pardon Mr. Barlow. He has a very thick accent. He's been on a business trip buying antiquities. You would spell it Kurt with a K. Okay, Mr. Mr. Kurt Barlow. That was a little bit strange on what he did there. But okay, um, what exactly are you looking for? I'm looking to take ad space in a newspaper to tell people to come to our antiquity shop. All right, I, can do, I think I can do that. Uh... Anything to get people to come to the shop, preferably the back. Uh, very heavy, gelatinous people filled with biofluids. Also, I think it should be noted in the ad space that none of our furniture has legs. No long wooden appendages for we don't want a child to slip and fall and puncture themselves in the heart, which it happens surprisingly often in our line of work. Huh. I, you know what? I haven't really thought about that. That's actually a really good point. So I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, nothing with legs. Definitely. Blood um, everywhere. Right. <laughs> okay, blood everywhere. <laughs> I think that's good. <laughs> so is there, do you want me to provide anything as far as food? Um, I can maybe, you know, have some pizza, like garlic. Do you like garlic? Is is that a thing? Or... <laughs> Although, what is the fucking thing that they hang on the outside of the house? Hawthorne. Hot. What? Yeah. We'll get into it. I did did research on it. We'll get into it. Okay. All right. Well. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's good. I like it.